The rest of you can turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll be in verses 67 through 79. That is found on page 12 of your bulletin this morning. We've been going through, well, last week was the first one. We looked at the the songs of Advent is what we're calling the sermon series. So last week we looked at Mary's song, also known as the Magnificat. Uh, This week we're going to look at Zechariah's song. And it may be a little bit, um, that story may be obscured a little bit in your mind by Mary and the shepherds and all the other stuff that goes on uh, at Christmas time and that we read and generally hear about. But but Zechariah was John the Baptist's dad, um, and he was the, the husband of Elizabeth, who was John the Baptist's mom, uh, connecting some dots there for you. Um, and something interesting happened to Zechariah when the angel Gabriel appeared to him in the temple as Zechariah was a priest, by the way, and he was, he was doing his priestly duties, burning incense in the, in the temple, and an angel appeared to him and said, you are going to have a son uh, in your old age, very similar to Abraham, right? Uh, and, and Zechariah did not believe him. Uh, and, and so the angel said, okay, so to, to, to kind of teach you a lesson and to show you that what I say is true, you will not be able to speak until all of these things come to pass. And so now these things have come to pass and Zechariah can now speak. And the first words that he utters are the words of this song that we're going to look at this morning. Um, And so let's turn and look at Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation for his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, cast your your memory back. Remember that time when you were kids and uh, everybody, unless you are still a kid and are still experiencing these times, everybody has these kinds of times when they are kids. Uh, remember this time, remember that time you were playing football in the house and you know, you knew that wasn't really a great idea, but you were really good at football. And so you threw the ball to your friend who was really bad at football and he missed it. And then that hit the lamp, which toppled over onto the end table and the shade of the lamp hit that ceramic knickknack that your great grandmother gave your, your mom when she was a kid. And that thing broke into a thousand pieces. You remember that time? Yeah, you remember that time. I know it. 
or the time when you were out in the backyard and you were having an acorn fight and you ran out of trash can lids. And so naturally your little sister didn't get one because you really didn't want her to play with you anyway. But she caught an acorn with her lip, which busted and she started crying and you run up to her and you're like, I'm sorry, don't tell mom, don't tell mom. Are you going to tell mom? You're like, you remember that time? Right? Or the time you decided to go whitewater rafting in the concrete drainage ditch ditch in your backyard. Or the time you you rammed a stick in the spoke of the big kid's bike because he wouldn't stop riding through your yard. Or you discovered the secret to making a a sticky napalm-like substance out of common household ingredients. Um, (laughs) At at some point in all of these purely hypothetical... um, scenarios, someone uttered a prophetic word to you, although you may not have, may not have registered to your ears as being prophetic. And he did it, or she did it uh, this way. They said these words, (laughs) probably with a smirk, like if it was your little sister, like it was with a smirk on her face, but probably with a smirk on their face, they said, oh, (laughs) you've had it now. You remember those prophetic words? You have had it now, right? Unbeknownst to this, this, this prophet, they were using an important literary biblical device known as the prophetic past. So in other words, you are not currently dead meat, but the future in which you are dead meat is so certain to come to pass that we might as well go ahead and start using the past tense when talking about it, right? That is called the prophetic past. We can go ahead and talk about these prophetic things that are going to come in the future, these great, these great promises of judgment, at least in this case, a promise of judgment, uh, or these great promises of redemption, but we're, they are so certain that they are going to happen that we use the past tense when talking about a future occurrence. That's what happens when someone says to you as a child, oh, you've, you've had it now. Your goose is cooked. Well, that's what Zechariah does here. Zechariah uses the prophetic past. And in verse 67, he, he says that these first words out of his mouth after this, this nine-month and eight-day sort of period of, of waiting uh, is prophecy. Verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying. So this song that we're looking at this morning is both a a song of thanksgiving, which it truly is, and a song of prophecy. It is an act of prophecy. And the first words out of Zechariah's mouth after this period of silence is this, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Did you catch the prophetic past going on? He has visited and redeemed his people that he has been unable to speak and and possibly not even hear because the people, when they come to him right before he sings a song are using sign language to try to communicate with him. It doesn't say that, but that's possible. And the first thing out of this mouth, his mouth is blessed. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Mary's song is called the Magnificat because in the Latin version of it, that is the first word in her song, which means, oh, magnify. This song is referred to as the Benedictus because the first word of this song in in the Latin is, is blessed be. 
It's a song of thanksgiving that, that God has redeemed Israel, that this is the salvation that Israel has long awaited. And it is coming to pass. It's happening now. God is finally going to do what he has promised from Abraham all the way to the present time to redeem his people. Zechariah pronounces the praise of the father for the surety of his saving work. And we can kind of break this song down into two sections. And, and, and uh, so verses 67 through 75 is kind of the first section. And that's a section in which Zechariah blesses God for the salvation once promised and now delivered. And then 76 through 79, Zechariah blesses his own son, John, in light of his role in preparing God's people for, to receive that salvation. So you can kind of think of the, if you want to outline this, you can kind of outline it in those two ways. Zechariah blesses God, and then Zechariah blesses his son, John. So let's look at how Zechariah blesses God, first of all. Uh, prophecy is a particular sort of genre in the Old Testament. Uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a style of writing that, that carries with it all sorts of different things and conventions and expectations and ways to read it and ways to understand it and, and all of this. But, but one thing that prophecy always is about is a response. And I, I like to think about it this way. When your kids were little and, and when my kids were little, I also prophesied to them and I would say something to them like, I'm going to eat you up, right? Now, the future in which I actually eat them up is not going to come to pass, but I tell them that I'm going to eat them up in order to do what? Elicit a response from them. And what is that response? To run away from daddy giggling and when trying to keep away from dad and kind of turn into this wonderful sort of rolling on the ground playtime, right? So, so that is how prophecy is. Prophecy is designed to, to get a response out of people. Uh, to, to respond to the one who is, who is uttering the words that, that God is giving Zechariah his word so that, so that we can properly respond to what it is that God is doing. And this song is our invitation to respond to what it is that God is doing, that God is moving towards us so that we can move towards him. And then then the question of how we should then live in response to his gracious invitation. We want to look at how we live in three different ways here. That we live in the victorious strength of his salvation. That we live in the freedom and rest of his salvation. And that we live in fearless obedience as a response to his salvation. So let's look at the victorious strength of his salvation. In verses 69 through 71, it says this, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This horn of salvation, this this came up last week too uh, in Mary's song, but this, this, this particular kind of turn of phrase that has been used in these two psalms, this horn of salvation uh, is a symbolic term for strength. Right uh, In Psalm 148, it says this, that he has raised up a horn for his people. Praise him, all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. That there's a sense in which if you are walking through a pasture 
and there are, there are cows in that pasture and some of those cows, like, I'm, I don't know if cows have horns. I really don't like, but if some of them have horns, uh, and, and those horns kind of all of a sudden turn towards you and you lock eyes with whatever beast that is, that is now start to barrel its way towards you. The horns are what you're going to be worried about, right? I mean, you're worried about the whole thing, but the, 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 the kind of the, the idea of that is that the horns are, then are the business end of this giant bovine creature, which is about to turn you into jelly, right? So that's the idea that the horns are the business end of the animal, that they represent the strength of the animal, the might of the animal. Mess with the bull, you get the, the horns and all that, right? Um, the coming Messiah was, was the strength and to kind of put it a little bit crassly, the coming Messiah was the business end of God's plan of redemption, right? That, that Christ being born is the fulfillment of this mighty warrior God who is saving and redeeming his people. He's the, the final act of, 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 um, defiance against the, the forces of sin and death and the, the final act of victory that is, that is ultimately going to be won, that Christ is the strength of God to save his people. That is the horn of the salvation that is being talked about. And the coming of Christ to, to Zechariah was to be the one who finally and fully would, would end the enemies of God's people. Now, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, in Zechariah's mind and in the mind of most people of that day, those enemies had a particular name and those enemies had a particular face and they wore particular uniforms and they saw those enemies day in and day out on the street corners and in tax collectors booths and, and along the roads, right? They were the Romans, and of course, we know that there's a bigger picture in mind, but that is definitely part of what's going on in Zechariah's mind. But, but there's a deeper magic in view here, one where the victory is more lasting and more significant than some sort of temporary political victory, that it isn't about toppling one kingdom or removing one tyrant. It's about breaking the back of the power of sin in the world. It's about ending death forever. And, and as Aslan says to the children, that, that death begins to work backward, right? It's about drawing the poison and corruption of sin from the universe and making all things new. That's, that's the strength of the salvation that we live in in Christ Jesus. We're also called to live in the freedom and rest of his salvation. You think about that kind of a salvation. What freedom and rest is there for us in it? Verse 68, it says, he has redeemed his people. In verses 72 and 74, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. This this he has redeemed his people literally means literally means he performed the ransom or he accomplished redemption that that he has paid a price to purchase his people 
to ransom his people. And and the words of Jesus kind of came immediately to my mind from Mark 10, for even the son of man came to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does that mean? What is a ransom? Why does Jesus have to ransom his people? Ransom is, is merely the paying the debt of another that that slavery was also often uh, a consequence of being in debt, that if you couldn't pay your debt, you were, you were taken into slavery until you could pay your debt, right? We owed a debt that God's justice demanded, and so we were slaves to our sin and to, to, to the, the power of sin at work within us. But, but Christ Jesus, by his perfect life and by his atoning death on the cross, paid the debt that put us into slavery. And so now we are no longer slaves but free but this one coming from the lord will be the one who pays the debt of his people blessed be the lord god of israel for he has visited and redeemed his people he has accomplished redemption for his people that his promised mercy is accomplished by his coming to his people and so this this the birth of the one that John, the new baby in this, this story, is, is going to announce and going to make, make the way for is the one through whom salvation will be accomplished and the one through whom the ransom will be paid. That, that salvation is not accomplished by a distant and, and aloof Savior. But it says that he has visited, he has visited his people even as he is redeeming his people, that he, he came down to us, but he is one who accomplishes redemption by coming to be with his people and to living a life alongside of his people. And therefore, we can rest in the accomplishment of the one who visited us and accomplished redemption for us. We can enjoy the freedom of the mercy and grace of our God, as Dave said, as we were leading into our time of confession, we can run with confidence to the cross, knowing that there is redemption and mercy and forgiveness there. And therefore, we can also live in fearless obedience as a response to his salvation. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. That because of the strength of the redemption accomplished by the Savior God with us, we can serve him joyfully and without fear. That, that idea of without fear is so, so awesome to me. That, that the accomplishment of our redemption comes first. This is where the idea of without fear comes from. That first redemption was accomplished. And as we talk about around here, we say that constitutes our identity as Christians. That our identity comes from what was done for us, not what we do. It comes from the obedience that Christ had and imputed to me by grace through faith, not my obedience to keeping statutes and rules and coming to church and doing my Bible study and having my quiet time and having a good prayer life and bringing my kids to church and teaching my kids about Jesus and all these long, endless lists of things. It's not accomplished by that. None of that stuff is my identity. My identity is in Christ. His perfect life lived on my behalf. His atoning death died for me. That that is who I am. That when God looks at me, he sees the perfect life of Jesus. 
because it's Christ's righteousness that covers me, because God made him who knew no sin to become sin for me so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's my identity. It's not in what I do. It's not in my sincerity of obedience or my ability to keep a law or a command, but it's in him now. Because of that, fearlessly we know that we can serve joyfully in response to him. And that comes second. Our identity comes first. Our activity comes afterwards. That we, we serve in holiness and righteousness, Zechariah says in this song. We know that we need a holiness that comes from another in our justification. We know that that in order to be saved, I have to have that holiness of Christ, that righteousness of Christ given to me by grace through faith. We kind of understand that as part of the gospel message. But even our acts of obedience, even the activity that comes from our identity needs a holiness and righteousness that comes from another. Our acts of obedience and service require a holiness that is dependent upon the holiness of the Savior. Because, yep, (laughs) Our motivations are mixed. I do some act of service for another person. I think I'm a pretty good, I'm a pretty good chap, right? I set aside my wants and desires for my kids. Parent of the year. I can't even go to the gym without thinking that I deserve a medal. Or at least a bunch of hot wings, right? Like... The good stuff that I do is still tainted and mixed up in all of this sin that I wrestle with in my heart. And even the good stuff that I do comes out as a mixed bag. But we serve, it says, without fear. Fear of what? Fear of judgment. (laughs) Isaiah 64 says that we have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That he takes not just what we offer on our best days and uses them to his own purpose and glory. He doesn't just take you on your best day. But the without fear part of that means that he takes you on your worst day and he still uses you to accomplish his holy will and his glory. That's what it means to serve him without fear and with holiness. That even the good stuff we do is dependent upon the holiness of another. And so therefore, serve him. (laughs) Therefore, serve him without fear, knowing that if you're having a bad hair day, you can still glorify God, right? That if if you are struggling with some particular sin, if your quiet time didn't connect with you this morning, or if you just didn't have it, or if you, you've missed so many times and so many, you've done so many sins that you know you shouldn't have done, and you know God is too angry to use you, you can still run to him in repentance and go forth and glorify him. On that day, he can use you because he's good and he has accomplished the salvation for us that is strong. So that's why Zechariah blesses God. That's a pretty good reason, right? Zechariah also blesses his son, John. Zechariah recognizes John, his son, as the herald. He recognizes John's place in the overall scheme of God's plan of redemption that 
that God's message has been declared to Zechariah about his son, John. And, and Advent for us is a, is a time of preparation. You know, I've said this before, and as we're kind of going through the things that we're doing together and the, the, the family devotions that we're having with uh, Little Hearts Prepare Him Room and, and Come Let Us Adore Him, that, that as we're preparing our hearts, we know that, and Zechariah knew that John will be used to prepare God's people, that there's, there's some reflection that is called for here, that he, he is called to go out before the Lord Jesus to prepare his way. He's called to give knowledge of salvation to God's people. He's called to proclaim the hope of a restored relationship between God and his people. And we should, we should heed that message that John is going to preach. That, God's, that John's message of preparation calls us then uh, to be saved through the forgiveness of our sins, right? Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That, that John's message calls us to prepare the way of the Lord by removing obstacles. John is called to remove obstacles in his path. And this image of the sunrise in verses 78 and 79 sort of is powerful to me as the sun comes up over the the lip of the world and casts its light and, and reveals the message of God to his people, right? The obstacles that were in our way, the things that we can't see because of the darkness have now been illuminated, John is calling us to run to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, either for the first time or the thousandth time. I can't say thousandth. It doesn't matter. His grace is sufficient. You can't out the mercy and grace of Jesus. He's calling for moral change. He's calling for our lives to conform to the life of Christ. Remembering that our identity comes from him and what he has done, but he's called us then to do battle against the work, work of sin in our heart, to resist, to struggle in the strength of the Holy Spirit, and to, to, to change in ways that only God can change us. In John's activity, John is known as John the Baptist, right? You kinda, I hope you connected those two points. And, and he is known for baptizing people. And the baptism of John in the New Testament was a different sort of baptism that we do and that was instituted uh, as the, the sacrament of baptism now. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a cleansing rite. It was a means by which people might be cleansed from the guilt and shame and stain and the impurity of their sins. It's, it's different. John said, I baptize you with water. But what did he say about the baptism that is coming from Christ? But the one that is coming will baptize you with fire. That there's a qualitative, purposeful difference between what John was doing and what Jesus was doing. But still, that baptism that John did was his work of preparing the way of the Lord, driving people to repentance through the forgiveness of their sins. He also calls us to rest in the tender mercy of God. And I love that. I love that phrase. I just sort of have sort of camped out on that phrase, the tender mercies of God this week. Because of the tender mercy of God, verse 78 says, because of the tender mercy of our God, which makes it even sweeter, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. It just says to me that none of this is a human invention. 
Salvation is not a human creation. It's not a human doctrine. It's not a human churchy thing that we invented. But it's a visitation of saving love in the form of a baby (laughs) born to die. That he intervenes in history to rescue his lost people. That, That no one is ever saved apart from the tender grace of God's intervention. What tender mercies our Heavenly Father has for us that he He came down to save his lost people so that we might walk in the light and peace of eternal hope. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The light-giving sunrise that I talked about just a minute ago is not only revealing the Messiah himself, not only revealing this baby identified as Jesus who is going to be born nine months later, maybe a few months later after John, but it's revealing the work of this little baby, the work of this Messiah. In other words, the forgiveness of sins. It's revealing the forgiveness of sins, the tender mercies of God. It's revealing not only the work of this little baby, but also the results of that work. Verse 79 refers to the shadow of death, the people who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death, that it's that shadow which is going to be removed from his people so that we no longer dwell in that shadow, but rather now we dwell in light because we've been given light by the tender mercies of God brought to us by this little baby. What does this end up meaning? Peace. Peace with God, relationship with God, restored, covenantal, faithful relationship with the saving, saving God of his people. The tender heavenly father coming down to rescue his lost and blind and broken and hurting and spiritually dead people to bring us to a place where we can be known by him fully, even as he reveals himself to us through Christ Jesus. I want to end this way. Um, the, the Old Testament ends with a, with a held breath. And I want us to kind of, kind of end this song this morning with that same sense of expectation, right? That same sense of something's coming. Something joyous is about to happen. Something beyond our understanding and reason is about to happen. Because Advent is not just about celebrating the birth of a baby long ago, the appearing of the Messiah long ago, but it's about the appearing of the Messiah that is to come, which will one day gather up all his people and bring us into the fullness of this strong salvation that he has won for us. And so there's a sense in which we hold our breath at this time and we expect and we look forward to. And even as we do that work of expectation and forward-looking and hoping, we learn and recognize more and more about the God upon whose promises we stand in expectation.
right? Sometimes God seems distant. He seems like he's not speaking. And Malachi 4, 5, and 6 are the last words of God to his people for 400 years. Here's what they are. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You kind of want to (gasps) go, and I think God's people did, and held their breath for 400 years. And now, that Elijah has come. The prophet par excellence has now been born and his name is John and he is the one that is going to prepare the way of the Messiah that is to come and accomplish finally this redemption that has been promised. My good friend, Will Spink, who is a pastor in Huntsville, posted this on Facebook and I'm like, I'm stealing that. Um, He says this, sometimes God seems distant, absent, or silent. If that's what you're feeling in your life today, Jesus is born to remind us that he's not. Take heart. God loves to bring his light into the darkest nights and his hope into the most hopeless places. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how, how we need the light of your salvation, the light of your presence, the light of your hope, the light of, of the, the surety of the promises that, that we can stand upon, that, that we can refer to your second coming in the past tense just as surely as Zechariah referred to your first coming in the past tense, that it will happen because you have promised it so. Lord, we thank you that we can find comfort and rest there. We thank you that we don't have to strive and struggle in in attaining some religious benchmark to earn your love, but rather we thank you that our identity is found in the accomplished work of another on our behalf, that in him we are new creations, that in him there is no condemnation. That in Christ we find rest and confidence to live lives that reflect your character and nature back into the world. Lord, help us to do that in response to all that you've done for us. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would be pleased and glorified in what we do next as we gather together as your people around your table. We pray that that your your spirit would gather with us and that you would communicate to us through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper the tender mercies that we've just heard about. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.